If you will, please turn in your Bibles again this morning to Paul's letter to the Christians in Galatia. If you're using a few Bible, and if that's helpful to you at all, you may find this letter on page 972. 972. I'd like to ask you how you think you would feel if shortly after your very successful missionary labors to an unknown people group or an unreached people group, some false teachers came in right behind you and infected your converts, your newly planted churches, with heretical teachings. Teachings that literally threatened the viability of those assemblies and even the salvation of the souls of those over whom you had so sacrificially labored. How would you feel? How would you feel if your theology and even your missionary motives were being impugned and undermined? How would you feel if you learned that those who once loved you passionately, and received you almost as if you were an angel from God who at one point in their lives would have done anything for you, how would you feel if you found out that they had so soon lost their affection and respect for you? How would you feel if you learned that what was most at stake was the gospel itself? that it was being distorted and made null and void, that grace was being exchanged for works, that faith was being exchanged for ceremonial law. Here's a different question. How would you feel about the perpetrators of such error who were undermining and destroying all that you had done? What if you had learned that these troublers, these agitators, were extremely subtle in their approach, actually building on all that you had taught your converts, but adding just enough law, just enough works to the true gospel in order to destroy it? How would you feel if one day someone came back from the region where you had planted those churches with a first-hand report about such things as I just asked you to imagine? How would you feel? What would you do? Especially if you couldn't just jump in a car or get on a bus or take a plane to that region. Surely, you would probably literally put your hands on your head and you would say something like, I'm astonished. I'm stunned. I'm shocked. I'm literally dumbfounded. I can't believe my ears. If you were a young person, you might say, this really freaks me out. I am And then you would probably 
sit down quickly and write a very earnest, direct, blunt letter filled with serious warnings about the danger of adding and thereby destroying the gospel. You would also probably take some time to address your own credentials, your own integrity, and your own motives as a missionary. Well, that is exactly what happened to our godly and exemplary missionary, Paul. And that is exactly what he did. He wrote a letter. And you hold it in your hands this morning. And it's our privilege to continue to look at it. And it's my privilege this morning to complete the introduction to that letter. The introduction is found in verses 1 through 10. Actually, verse 10 becomes a kind of bridge between 9 and what follows. But generally, the introduction should be seen as verses 1 through 10. Now, last Lord's Day, we concentrated on Paul's greeting. I called it um, his salutation. It's found in verses 1 through 5. And we saw that according to the normal pattern, the the writer was identified Paul, an apostle. However, he wanted to make it immediately clear that his office of apostle was not received from men or came through men. It came directly from Jesus Christ and from God the Father who raised Jesus Christ from the dead. He secondly and very briefly identified who his readers were in verse 2, and he just simply said to the churches of Galatia. And then we saw that he also gave them a blessing, a blessing which ended with a doxology. Sometimes we call these blessings a benediction. It was a good word. It's found Pastor Mark just quoted them for us. These are the words that we would encourage you to memorize from the first sermon where he wished grace and peace upon them from God. But what I want you to notice and not miss again is how quickly the Apostle Paul got to the gospel. Already in verse 1, he mentions that God the Father raised Jesus Christ from the dead. That was essential to salvation. That is critical to the gospel. And then, as soon as he gets to verse 3, he opens up the wonderful truth that our Lord Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins. And his purpose was to rescue us, to deliver us from the present evil age in which we live. And all of this was rooted in the will of God. And so even in his greeting. He's earnest to get the gospel upon the minds of his readers. No words of commendation. No words of thanks. Genuine blessing and then quickly down to business. Now, this morning, what I want to do is continue with Paul's introduction to this letter. And what we see in verses 6 through 10, very clearly, is the reason for which he wrote the letter. We see the occasion for this letter. We see the purpose. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand his purpose. And as we examine these five verses, I'm going to organize my opening of them up, my exposition, my explanation around three words, and I hope that this will be helpful to you. All three words happen to begin with the letter A. They're in the text. 
And I think they're helpful to us in terms of directing us to the heart of what the Apostle Paul was saying to his readers. The first word that I want you to notice in verse 6 is the word astonished. And then the second word I want you to notice in verse 8 and in verse 9, the last word of each verse is the word accursed. Let him be accursed, he says twice. And the third word that I want you to notice is found in verse 10, and that is the word approval. So if I were to submit to you an outline, then I guess I would put it like this. What we have first of all in verses 6 and 7 is what I would call a blunt expression of astonishment. It's blunt. It was designed to be blunt. It was designed to create an effect. It was designed to make them feel shocked. And then in verses 8 and 9, we have what I would call a fearful prospect of being accursed. And then finally, in verse 10, we have what I would call a faithful pursuit of the right approval. More than one kind of approval for us to seek. And Paul tells us what was the right approval and the one that he was seeking. So let's let's consider the occasion for this letter, the purpose for this letter under those three headings. First of all, the blunt expression of astonishment. Notice it in verse 6. Let me just go ahead and read 6 through 10. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting from him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want, this is their desire, they want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, that would include me, the Apostle Paul, and my fellow apostles, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Let him be anathema, literally the word. As we have said before, he's probably not referring to verse 8, but he's probably referring to his previous ministry among the churches in Galatia. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be anathema. Let him be cursed. For am I now... Am I now, right now, in this letter, these days of my life, since I have been an apostle, am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. And then, God willing, next week, you'll see how that forms the bridge to Paul's 
defense of himself personally. Now then, let's consider this blunt expression of astonishment. What was Paul astonished about? Well, the answer is right there in your text. Anyone can see it. He was astonished that the Galatians were in the process, and I underscore the word process because that word is in the present. Notice, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting. He doesn't say, I'm astonished that you have deserted. He says, you are deserting. This is a process. And what this actually means is something turning into something else. That's literally what it means. It means to change place, to transplant, to change allegiance, to become what you could call a spiritual turncoat. And I'm just going to explain turncoat for the children or others who may not know, but a turncoat would be where you take someone else's coat of a different color and you exchange it, you give them yours and you take theirs, or you take a coat and turn it inside out so that it has a completely different color for you. During the days of the war between the states, there were some cowards who, upon killing the enemy, but fearful of remaining in battle, dragged the dead soldier off, took off his uniform off of the dead soldier, and put that on himself so that he wouldn't be killed by anyone else. He's a turncoat. That's what this word desert actually means here. And they were in the process of deserting. It hadn't come to a completion. If it had come to a completion, the Apostle Paul probably wouldn't have been writing this letter because it would have been too late. He's trying to rescue them. He's trying to awaken them. He's trying to say you're in a very, very serious place. You must catch yourself quickly. Your souls are at stake. The glory of God is at stake. The integrity of the gospel is at stake. And so he writes this letter to say very, very firmly, and I'm sure quite quickly after he had gotten that report. So he was astonished that they were turning and and that they were turning so quickly. But what I want you to notice is, is this. What were they turning from? And if you were reading and listening carefully, you would say to me, Pastor Ted, it's not about what. It's about who. Look at the text again. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him, not it. He isn't, he isn't saying that your first problem is that you have turned from the gospel. In a sense, that is implied. But he wants them to feel something. This gospel that they had received and been saved by had been sent to them from a person. It emanated. It began in the heart of God. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God sent his son to die in the place of the Galatian sinners. And Paul says, you need to understand that this desertion is first and foremost from a person. It's a personal desertion, and God takes it personally. But he also wants to emphasize how quickly it's happening. He says, I'm astonished that you so quickly, that you are so quickly deserting him. Now, does this mean that there was just a brief period of time between his planting the church and the infiltration of false teaching and heresy? Perhaps. In fact, very likely. 
Or does he mean that almost as soon as the troublers came and began to teach their false doctrine that they quickly came under the power of it? Perhaps. But in any case, it wasn't long before they had departed from the God who had initiated their salvation. Notice the word called. We must not skip over that. You're so quickly deserting him who called you. Now, dear friends, dear brothers and sisters, if you are truly trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, if you're sitting here as a believer, it's because God called you. And I don't mean by that that he merely invited you as the gospel invites all men without discrimination. I mean that he sent his Holy Spirit through the preaching or reading of his word, and he literally changed you and and powerfully and sweetly. He didn't drag you kicking and screaming. No, no. God changes our hearts, but he compelled you graciously to come to his Savior, and you fled to him, I trust, in some way, some form or some fashion. You were called. That's the meaning of the word called so often, most often in the New Testament. And Paul is saying, I'm literally dumbfounded. I can hardly believe that you would so quickly desert him who called you by what? By the grace of Christ. God can't call sinners into fellowship with himself unless there is a payment for their sins. And the Lord Jesus Christ graciously came to live and to die in our place and to make atonement for our sins, and to satisfy the wrath of God. It's all grace. Paul's just deeply troubled that these churches that he had planted, had such high hopes for, had been infiltrated with heresy. And the end result was that these people were turning. They were deserting. They were deserting God. So these troublers, these agitators, that's literally what that word means as well there in verse 7. He says, um, there are some who trouble you, these agitators, these people who are throwing you into confusion, these people who have excited in you a perplexity. They have a goal. And their goal is to distort the gospel. Notice that. There are some who trouble you and want. We don't have to question their motives. They may be questioning Paul's motive, but we don't have to question their motive. They want to distort the gospel of Christ. Now, this is a word which actually means to reverse, to change to the opposite, to twist something into something different. It's like turning the gospel inside out. It's like turning the gospel upside down. That's the way that word is used frequently in the New New Testament. It's going from one thing to its exact opposite. It's putting the gospel on its head. Now, what I want you to see, and we must not miss this, in verses 6 and 8, and this is, this is probably the most important thing that has to be understood from this text today. And so I'll say, as we do sometimes, if you don't get anything else, make sure you get this. Please appreciate, please understand, please grasp this truth that a different gospel is not really a gospel at all. Let me put it differently. There is only one gospel. 
a different gospel is not really a gospel. That we have to grasp. You see how Paul makes that clear there in verse 7 again. He says, not that, well, actually at the end of verse 6, they're turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. There is no other gospel. And this is what we have to grasp. This is central to this whole passage. And this is what we as your pastors want us to embrace with fresh appreciation and love and tenacity. There's only one gospel. And we live in a world that is um, putting huge, great, colossal pressure on us to be pluralistic, which just means to have more than one view and to see that there are many ways. Plural means more than one. There are many ways to God. Who do you think you are to say that there is only one way, one Savior, one truth, one gospel? That's the pressure we feel in an eclectic, pluralistic society. Those may be big words. It just means, boys and girls, that we live in a world where you're going to be told that it's not right for you to tell anybody else that there's only one way about something that the Bible says. There are there are more than one way. They're in different things that don't count. But when it comes to salvation, there's only one way. And you're going to feel the pressure. People are going to say to you, you can't say that. You're making judgment. You're saying other people are wrong. And you have to sweetly say, I am saying other people. Because God has spoken. So we have to appreciate this in this text, that there is only one gospel Any other gospel that claims to be a gospel that is different than this gospel is not truly a gospel at all. And what I want to say closely on the heels of that is this, that any attempt to alter the gospel always results in the destruction of the gospel. Any attempt to modify the gospel, just to change it a little bit, results in destroying the gospel. Any attempt to add to the gospel destroys the gospel. Any attempt to subtract from the gospel destroys the gospel. Be that change ever so slight. And that's where the danger comes in. Just slight changes in the doctrine of justification destroys it. Just minute Alterations, just little nuances, destroy the gospel. And these Judaizers were doing that. They were building on Paul's foundation. You know, these people who came in to that region, probably from Jerusalem, were very, very complimentary of the Apostle Paul, no doubt. It was like, glad to see what's happened here. We're so excited about the new churches and about your conversion and about your Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. We too believe that he is the Messiah, no doubt. We too believe he rose from the dead. Do you know, we've just come to help you come to a richer, deeper, more mature and complete understanding of what salvation really is. And 
you know, frankly, there are just a few things that the Apostle Paul left out, and we just want to help you with those things. We only want to add one more little thing to the gospel that you've come to understand so that you'll have a full-orbed gospel. We just need to add a little bit of ceremonial law, just, just a little. Just a little bit about circumcision for the men and certain um, full moon festivities and just just a few other ceremonial laws. That, that's all. We just want you to become a true Jew, a true Israelite. We're, we're going to help you with that. And in so doing, Paul argues that they destroyed the gospel. One of the commentators imagined, he just imagined a letter written by these Judaizers to the church churches in Galatia. Now, I, I know they went there first. I've already said that. But maybe they too wrote some letters like the Apostle Paul. Here's how one of their letters could have gone by way of introducing their, their desires for the churches. Their dear brothers of Galatia, we greet you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have heard how through the ministry of Brother Paul, you have been converted from the worship of dumb idols to serve the true and living God of Israel. We're glad you have made such a good beginning, but we're afraid that there are some very important things about the gospel Paul has omitted to tell you. We ourselves come from the church at Jerusalem, which is directed by the very apostles Jesus called and ordained. Paul, though, is an upstart. Why, he never even knew Jesus while he was on the earth and was certainly never commissioned by him as an apostle. True, Paul did visit Jerusalem just after he stopped persecuting us, and there he learned the ABCs of the Christian faith from the apostles. But the message he now preaches bears little resemblance to theirs. I don't imagine he even told you about circumcision. Why, this is the very way God has made it possible for you Gentiles to become part of the new Israel. Jesus did not come to abolish the law. He said so himself. But to fulfill it, circumcision is just as important as baptism. Well, actually more important, for it will introduce you to a higher plane of Christian living. If you will observe this holy ordinance of the law, God will be pleased with you. We are just now forming a new association of law-observant churches, and we would love for Galatia to be represented. We are the true Christians. Jesus, our great example, pleased the Father by fulfilling the law, and so can you. That sounds pretty good. Don't think that these Judaizers, these troublers, these agitators came in there and said, hey, it's all wrong. We're going to just revamp this entire thing. We're going to dismantle it and start all over with a different gospel. But Paul's saying their their little changes, their little additions created another gospel, which is not gospel. It's bad news. It's not good news. So I just want to ask you, how serious, how serious do you think it is, how dangerous do you think it is to destroy the gospel by altering it in the slightest? I hope you're ready to say it's very serious. Well, now, I'll take you to the second A word, and we'll begin to see how serious it is. 
The first word was astonished. I'm astonished. I'm dumbfounded. What's the second A word? It is the word accursed. Accursed. And I submit to you that we have in verses 8 and 9 a fearful prospect of being accursed. Notice the words again, verse 8. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. And as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be accursed. Paul puts forth two possibilities here, doesn't he? Actually, one is a reality. But he starts with if. He says, let me just give you something to suppose and think about. Because it's deadly serious. His first supposition is, in verse 8, that he or some of his fellow apostles or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Do you understand what Paul's saying? He's saying, look, folks, it's like this. I know that God used me to plant the churches there. And I know that you listened to me as a vehicle of revelation from God. And I was indeed that. But if the day ever comes that I come and visit you and I say to you, Galatians, since I was last with you, God has given me further insight into the real essence of the gospel, and I'm going to have to preach it a little differently preached it when I was with you before. I hope you will appreciate that I'm taking you to the next level. This is going to be helpful to you. I'm Paul, okay? You all remember me. You you wanted to gouge your eyes out and give them to me. You loved me so much. You know who I am, okay? I'm Paul. I'm the apostle. I did miracles. I did miracles among you. That's very clear from the record in Acts 13. I'm the same guy, okay? So you don't have to doubt what I'm going to say when I tell you that we need to change things a little bit. Paul says, if I ever come back to Galatia and I ever say anything like that, you say to me, Paul, we hardly dare to say this, but we're compelled to say it. To hell with you. That is literally what anathema means. The word anathema means something devoted to God for destruction. This is an eternal condemnation. And Paul says, I'm so deadly serious about what I'm telling you that even if I came back and told you a different gospel, you should say to me, in all due respect and in true love for your soul, Saul, you are going to hell. And he said, if that doesn't seem very realistic, or you wouldn't be likely to succumb to that kind of a temptation, how about this? How about an angel from heaven? And that's why the title of the sermon today is, When Not to Listen to an Angel. I'm not going to take credit for that title. I actually got that title from John Piper. I listened to a great sermon by Piper. Listen to a really good sermon by Alistair McBag. Listen to a good sermon by John MacArthur. But I, as soon as I saw the title, I said, I like that, so I'm not plagiarizing, okay? What's the point? 
The point is there are times that when even if an angel comes from heaven, from heaven, all of the non-elect angels were expelled from heaven. The angels that are now in the presence of God are holy angels. Paul says if an angel comes from heaven and tells you another gospel, you must say to that angel, and you hardly dare to contemplate saying such to hell, anathema. It's a different gospel. And a different gospel is not a gospel. God doesn't change. And God doesn't change his gospel. This is exactly. So I'm, I'm raising the question. How, how serious do you think this stuff is? Just kind of messing around a little bit, taking a little bit of the clay of our imagination. So there's just, hey, we're just going just gonna to shape this gospel thing just, just a little different. It's deadly. It's eternally deadly. Well, that's his first suggestion. But his second one is, is is not hypothetical. That's pretty hard to believe, isn't it? We say, you know, I don't really think Paul's going to do this. Not, not now that he's writing this and telling us how dangerous it is. I'm pretty sure that's not going to happen. And since the elect angels are holy angels, I'm pretty doubtful that any angel will ever come from heaven. Paul says, well, let me give you something that's real, okay? This is real. In verse 9, as we have said before, and it is possible that he's referring to what he just finished saying. Most commentators believe that it was when he returned to the churches in Galatia, we have a record of it in Acts 14, that probably around those days he warned them about false teachers. Why not? He warned the church in Ephesus about false teachers. He said to, he said to the elders of Ephesus when he gathered them there, he said, uh, when I depart, grievous wolves will rise up from among you who will teach you heresy in essence. So it's very likely that Paul on an earlier occasion had told them, don't ever let someone come and tinker with the gospel that I preach. And if anyone ever does, you may say to that person, be a curse. That's probably what he means when he says, as I said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be cursed. Well, that was happening. So that's Paul's judgment. That's his fearful prospect for those troublers from probably Jerusalem, those agitators who are coming to preach a different gospel. What is the doom of heretics? Hell. Hell is the doom of heretics. I wish I could take some time just to distinguish between errors that are not heretical and heresy. There, there's a big difference, and we want to be careful. People who don't believe all that we believe about the doctrines of grace are not heretics. Heresy is that false teaching which undermines the fundamental principles of the Christian faith. Heresy is that form of teaching which, if embraced, has the tendency to destroy the soul. 
We need to be careful about calling people heretics simply because they disagree with us. But on the other hand, we need to be careful about being fearful of not calling people heretics who are heretics. Heresy is cruel. We must not be cruel to heretics. We must call a heretic by its first name. And this is one of my concerns. This is one of our concerns, obviously. I don't hold this in a unique way that my fellow pastors don't. We want the Heritage Baptist Church to be a church of people who think clearly and precisely and hard about truth and know what they believe and know where they stand and know how to defend it from the Word of God and know how to smell heresy a mile away. We want to be precise around here. We want to be rigorous around here. We want to be like Paul advised us to be. We want to be mature in our thinking, not childish in our thinking, so that we can see error and call it by its first name. And what is more important for us to see error in connection with than the gospel? It's, it's critical. It's the most critical thing because it is essential to our salvation. So the gospel is at stake and the glory of God is at stake. Paul's not talking here about church discipline. He's not saying let him be cast out. He's saying let him be cursed. So that's the second thing. Now, after having delivered his double anathema, we come to what I'm calling a faithful pursuit of the right approval. It's our third A word. And we find that just in verse 10. And, you know, the implication is, why would Paul say this? For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I, or am I trying to please man? Those are rhetorical questions. That's a device designed to create an effect. What answer does Paul assume is appropriate for his questions. No. No. He wants his people to say no. Why would he even raise those questions? Because he's being falsely accused by the troubling. They're not only assaulting the gospel by trying to tinker with it. They're assaulting the apostle. And by the way, just, just a word about this. The truthfulness of the message is what proves one to be an apostle. Being a professed apostle does not make the message true. This passage is about the message. The importance of the message. You know, there's a passage in Deuteronomy 13 about false prophets, and it says, uh, what should you do if a false prophet performs a miracle in your presence, will he be thereby proved to be um, a true prophet? I guess I should have put the question this way. If a man performs a miracle who claims to be a prophet, should we all say, he's a prophet? That's for sure. You know what God says through Moses? He says, no. The way to determine whether or not he's a true prophet is his message. If he calls you to go after other gods, forget about the fact that he did a miracle. The message is critical. And 
Paul's raising these questions because they're they're obviously they're spreading the word probably in Galatia. Uh, you know the deal about Paul. Here's the deal about Paul. Great guy, great guy. But you know he's kind of a what should we call him? Um, I'll call him an ecclesiastical politician. That's what he is. He's in, he when when he's with the Jews, he knows their strong view of the law, and he says you need to be circumcised. But when he's with the Gentiles, he says, you know, that, that's not really part of the gospel any longer. That's for Jewish people. You don't need to be circumcised. He sort of licks his finger to find out which way the wind's blowing. And, you know, he's at the end of the day, he's about pleasing men. That's, that's, who, that's who he is. He didn't want to tell you the truth about your need to be circumcised. We're here to tell you the truth because we, we're not about pleasing men. Just liars. That's all you are. Paul knew that they that he was being assaulted in that regard. And so he says to his readers, do you honestly think for one single moment that I'm about seeking the approval of man as opposed to God? Are you kidding me? Do you know what I just got through telling you? I just brought down anathemas from God's just thrown upon anybody who would tinker with the gospel, and you think that I'm about pleasing people? That isn't the way you make friends and influence people, call down, hurl down anathemas from God. No, Paul says, the answer is, I'm all about pleasing God. I'm not about pleasing man, fundamentally. In other ways, I am. I I want to please man if I can do it in a way that doesn't displease God. We should want to please man. But never do we want to please men in a way that offends God. And so Paul's defending the integrity of his allegiance really to Christ. He says, am I now seeking the approval? And then I think there's something to be said about the word still in verse 10. If I were still, I don't want to make too much of this, trying to please men. They're saying that I'm trying to please men. Maybe that was true when I was in Judaism. I was really rising. I was a shooting star. A lot of that was genuine, though, too. He says, I did it in ignorance. He really thought Jesus was an enemy of the of true religion. But apparently, there was some of that pleasing man in Saul's soul. And here's where this gets real practical. Is there a thinking person listening to me this morning who doesn't have any of that left in your heart? Struggle with that all the time. I had to try to purge my soul in bed last night thinking about wanting to deliver a good sermon. Did you know that all your pastors want to deliver a good sermon? Do you know none of us are free from hoping that you really can preach? I'm just going to tell you that. If you didn't know that, you know it now. And if any of my fellow pastors disagree with what I just said, forgive me, but I want to meet you out in the parking lot after church, okay? (laughs) We struggle with this. We want to be loved. We want to be liked. We want to be encouraged. We fight against it. We know it's sinful often. All of us, dear people, are living in a world where 
we too feel the pressure to want to be liked and to be approved. And I'm saying to us, we need to be like the Apostle Paul because he dared to say, okay, I'll ask you, who do you think I'm about, pleasing men or God? You know the answer is God. Am I about pleasing man? No. If I was about pleasing man, I couldn't be a servant of Jesus Christ. Because you know what? You can't serve two masters. No man can serve two masters. Christ is my Lord and my master. And I live, says Paul, to please him. And if I was pleasing men, fundamentally, generally, as I'm being accused, I wouldn't be a servant of So there's the right pursuit, dear people. It's the approval of God. Now, I need to to hurry on because I want to conclude this. And uh, I just want to leave you with some, some applications. You've seen that the central teaching of this passage is that there is only one gospel. You know, I haven't explained the gospel, have I? That's not good. I just want to remind everyone that the good news is simply this. And this is this is what Paul would die, this is what he did die for. The gospel is that God forgives sinners freely based upon what Christ did for them. What did he do for them? He lived a perfect life, word, thought, and deed. Never, never violated one of the moral laws of God. And then he took that perfect life to Calvary's cross to be a substitute for all who would trust in him. And while hanging on the cross, God the Father poured out the wrath that all sinners deserve upon him. And he took the wrath that we deserve He took it in our place. And he also worked out, if you will, proved, demonstrated a perfect righteousness in his life. And the good news is that when you come to Jesus and give him all of your sins, he gives you all of his righteousness. And the proof that God accepted the perfect sacrifice of Jesus was that he rose him from the dead. He raised him from the dead. And God pronounces all who trust in him acquitted, justified, perfect in his sight. And all of this you get by doing nothing except looking to him and trusting in him. You come with the empty hands of faith and lay hold of Jesus. Need you. takes our and he gives us his righteousness. And God pronounces the believer justified by grace alone through faith in Christ for the glory of God. Yes. Yes. That's all you do if you believe upon out of a broken heart of sin, fullness, sense free, absolutely free. And if you add one ounce of works to that grace, 
the grace disintegrates. God will not allow anything to be added to that gospel. It would be like one of these pastors said this, offering your spouse or one of your children a refreshing glass of orange juice in the morning at the breakfast table and saying, would you like a glass of orange juice? And they say, yes, I'd love that. And he said, would you mind if I just put one gram of arsenic? Works are like arsenic. And the gospel is free. and We can't alter it. This is what I'm colluded with then, having shared the gospel with you. Believe upon the Lord Jesus, you who are lost. Believe upon him today, right now, right where you are, right now in the pew. Call upon his name and say, Jesus, I come to you as my Savior right now. Be saved before this sermon is over. Be saved before this minute is over. The second you trust Christ. But I just want to challenge us as Christians to really seriously consider, is it possible that even we still have some pronouncements to be pharisaical or to be like the Judaizers, to add something to the gospel? I think we do. I know that I do. And I think we should be very careful about that. I think because of remaining sin, and we are all Pharisees to start with, just like we were all Arminians to start with. I'll explain that later. <laughs> and remaining sin wants us to say, God, could I just add a little something? I wouldn't use language. You're, you're, you're more pleased with me now, aren't you, because I did that? That, that made you happier, didn't it? That, that helps us a little bit make me stand better with you, doesn't it? I think we have that proneness. And we, we are prone to be performance-driven. Maybe our culture makes us that way. We, if we perform better for God, we believe that somehow we've come more into the favor of God. I'm not saying that God cannot be pleased by obedience and acts of devotion. He is. But I'm talking about a different kind of trying to bring him pleasure to add subtly. Sometimes we believe that our penance earns us perhaps just a little more favor with God. Just got to be a little little more sorrowful. We have Protestant ways of doing penance. And we linger a little bit longer in our condition of brokenness and hope that somehow that's putting us on a better standing with God. And sometimes I think we're, we're slow in being joyful after we've confessed our sins and really received by faith the promise that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness and to live in the joy of that. No, it's too early to live in the joy of that. I don't think God would be pleased with that. Wait a minute. God wants to forgive you immediately, and he'll be more pleased with your receiving that by faith than he will with you going on in, in a reticent way, remaining in your sorrow one thing to be humbled by our by remembering our sinfulness but we have to quickly come and receive the forgiveness and not think that somehow we're going to be more pleasing to God if we carry in that condition I think we have a proneness subtly perhaps to think that God is more pleased with us when we do better and when we deepen our devotion 
that puts us on a little better stance. I think we have a proneness to think that God may be more pleased with us as a church than with other churches. Maybe he is. That's a pretty dangerous thing to assume. Why would we think that? Because we have better doctrine. Do you really believe we have better doctrine? I do. Absolutely. Totally. That sounds arrogant. I do. We have a great confession of faith. that make us more pleasing to God than we already were by trusting in Jesus Christ only? Have you ever contemplated the possibility that people in our own community who know less about God but know Him truly are more pleasing to Him? And I'm probably contradicting myself in one sense because we're all equally pleasing to God in Christ. What I'm saying is if you're going to measure favor by all those things, pride enters in, and we need to be very careful about that. And we need to be very careful about thinking that it's all about the gospel, but, you know, we're really into uh, saving our nation. I do want to do what I can do. I made one of those phone calls the other day. I made one of those 800 phone calls that uh, Huckabee is encouraging people to do, to overturn Obamacare. I care about our That isn't the gospel. The gospel isn't trust in Christ and save your nation. The gospel is trust in Christ and save. I'm just saying we got to think through carefully and humbly about ways that even we, though we would never say it, I know that this somehow helps atone for me, we would never say it. But deep down in our hearts, functionally, we feel that. We actually feel like being more pleasing. We're being more pleasing. This is going to put us on a better stand. No, it's not going to put us on a better stand. You can't get put on a better standing than the standing you're put on when you look to Jesus. So this epistle is for Heritage Baptist Church. Gospel is truth. And may the Lord help us to love it. I just wonder, this is, this is my closing statement, I, and actually I didn't wonder that until I was singing down here this morning, and I just thought, and I was praying and I thought, I wonder if any of us would be capable of feeling the stuff Paul felt. And this is where I felt so convicted in bed last night. I'm just being really honest with you. I felt like you're worried about preaching a good sermon, like you always are, toward the end of the week. Paul was worried about the gospel. He was worried about the glory of God. He was worried about a pure gospel. And you're going to get up and you're going to preach a sermon about a pure gospel and be worried about, oh, God, forgive me. Purge me of that. And I, and I was thinking as I was singing where I was standing where Mark, Pastor Mark is sitting right now. God, could I ever even write a letter like that? Could I feel so strongly about the purity and the freeness of the gospel that I would actually feel warranted to say, anybody who ever changes this gospel to hell with you. The degree to which we hate errors that harm the gospel is probably the degree to which we love. So may God give us to feel about these the way the apostle Heavenly Father, thank you for this portion of Scripture. We've only scratched the surface. Give us insight. Give us understanding. Make us humble. 
Help us to be thankful that there's only one gospel. Don't let us in any subtle way ever try to add somehow to that perfect message. And help each one of us to trust in it. May some today trust for the first time in the Savior of the gospel.